And now back to our interview. I would like to go back to something that you uh, brought up about uh, the failed, what you view as failures in in some of your past companies. And I know that there was a lot of highs and lows. I know that there was rejection. I think you referred to it as scar tissue. Um, I feel like we never really talk about some of that stuff. And I think a lot of people who are in startups um, would probably get a lot of value in hearing the honest vantage point of that. Would you mind sharing? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely tough going through, um, getting to a point where you convinced all of these people to join you in a major project. They've really put in a meaningful percentage of their life into attempting to solve a particular problem. And knowing that it's not going to succeed is really emotionally painful. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that um, so many people that I talk to who their companies did not succeed, they, they view themselves as failures. And I certainly would consider myself in different points in my life in that camp. Uh, I put all this work, I put years into this project and it didn't go anywhere. But the reality is that most people see those things if you can show that you learn from them, um, which almost everybody does. Uh, it, it really helps in the long term. Uh, the, I've even, I've written just honestly for my own sake, a postmortem uh, on each of the companies on what I did wrong, what we could have done differently, what the major mistakes were. Um, some of them are just specific tactical things. Like one of the biggest mistakes we made at Sightline Maps, because we didn't really know anything about fundraising. We, we bootstrapped the whole thing um, until a couple of years in, and then um, we started raising money and we, we planned our fundraising around when we would run out of money. And that seems perfectly logical when you're a first time founder, because why would you want more money when you don't need money? But it turns out if you raise money when you need it, uh, nobody wants to give it to you. <laughs> and we ended up taking money on terms that were really quite painful. And uh, had we thought about it differently, we probably would have, uh, we would have raised money earlier when we had more momentum. And that would have been, uh, that would have been a much better approach. Well, and you wouldn't have been desperate, right? Because they can smell the desperation. Totally. Yeah. And and similarly at Kardash, there were so many different lessons there. One of the big ones is around um, focusing on, uh, focusing on how we're using our engineering time. Uh, My philosophy on building software companies is that engineering is always the constraint. So anything you can do to free up engineering to moving the company forward to get you closer to product market fit is really what you should be optimizing for. And at Kardash, we we spent, in retrospect, way too much of our time building internal tools and far too little time building products that our customers loved. Um, Some of this is just because a lot of the tooling that we have now didn't exist back then. 
Um, we use Retool at Levels, which is an incredible tool that makes internal dashboards much easier to make. Um, people on our ops team can make dashboards in an afternoon that usually would have taken several days of engineering time. Um, so it frees up that resource to be used for other things. Um, but it was really, I learned, learned one of the lessons the hard way of uh, making sure that we're paying attention to what the end state is. I, I remember a moment where in, in our pitches, in what we would tell the customers, we would say that our app uh, at Cardash, the idea was you take a picture of your license plate, we pull up all of your history, we press a button, we have somebody uh, pick up your car, we get it serviced, we bring it back same day. And a year in, we still hadn't built much of that functionality because we were so focused on the logistics and improving unit economics. And we, we let ourselves scale and grow too fast, um, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it's, it's one of the lessons that why at Levels we're so focused on finding product market fit before we scale things. We wanna make sure that we explore all of the surface area because once you've committed to a path and all of your engineering time is spent uh, scaling things and building these things out, it's very hard to, to change the direction of the ship once it's going too fast. How far along are you in the process with levels? It's, it's coming along. Uh, our team is about 22 people. I think we've, we've raised 12 million. Uh, we raised our seed round from Andreessen in, in September. And uh, we're, we're currently targeting a public launch sometime in Q3. But I, I, I tend to think of these things as more milestone-based than I think chronology-based. So... I, if I had to guess, I would say sometime in Q3 is what we're targeting. Um, but there are, there's a lot of surface area I'd still like to explore before we, uh, we increase access. That's incredible. I, I hope you're able to meet those numbers. You've, you've learned so much along the way with the other companies, so you, you sounds like you're, you're on the right path. How many more? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> How many more people are you looking to bring in? We're adding, I think as many as eight or 10 more engineers this year. We're mostly focused on engineering hiring. Um, there there's a lot of things on a product roadmap that we really need to execute against. Um, we're, we're bringing on, one of the other things that we're, just as a company culture, is we're, we're really uh, engineering heavy, which is not surprising given that um, my previous roles have all been in engineering. So we're, planning to bring on a lot of engineers and really having an engineer and product focused culture. Um, the, uh, I'd say we're really focused on bringing on product minded engineers, which are engineers who really want to dig deep into product and not just get a set of specs from the product team and implement those specs, but people who are really engaged in the process. Um, so that's, that's another cultural aspect that we think about is, uh, the team composition. Some some companies are in different markets. Core competencies are different, and so if you're building a company where your core competency is customer segmentation and marketing, um, the quality of the engineering team is less important than the quality of the marketing team. So really focusing on bringing on those people who understand those things and who can iterate very quickly and who can do growth marketing are very important. Um, other companies have a clinical competency. Um, so just 
knowing what your competency is, I think, really helps to drive the team composition and the company culture. So how would you share your company culture with these new people coming in so that you can optimize for that? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it is I, I personally have a call with every person that we interview. Um, I think several of my co-founders do as well for every person. Um, I think it's, there's really no way around it to just make sure that, I think this may be apocryphal, but I think uh, Elon Musk personally interviewed the first 2,000 employees at Tesla that they ended up hiring, which means that he probably interviewed way more than that um, for people that they didn't end up hiring. Um, we, we do a lot of it through documentation. So we, we write down a lot of things. That's one of our core values as a company is transparency and documentation. So usually when people start at levels or even before they start, uh, they have a lot of information on how our company operates. We share with them our team all hands. We share our investor updates. We share our strategy documents. And it should give them a sense of how our team operates with each other and also um, how we're building things towards the future. Um, one, of our, one of our recent hires mentioned to me that he, uh, having after two weeks of working at Levels, he feels like he knows more about our company and our team than he did about his previous company, and he was there for five years. Um, just the, the sheer volume of documentation. We also, uh, because onboarding is such a priority for us in terms of culture, we try to ensure that uh, people don't feel pressured to have deliverables early on. Uh, we want them to, you only get one chance to onboard uh, because then you have all these expectations and deliverables. So we, uh, usually the first week we explicitly tell people that there are no deliverables. Your only job is to read this material, talk to the people on the team, learn as much as you can. Um, and really the first month uh, is really focused on onboarding rather than trying to get them uh, to start to contribute as quickly as possible. Sounds like you've learned a lot from all your startups. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the hard lessons, uh, so at Cardash, we, we scaled the team very quickly. Uh, I think we went from five or six people to 40 within about four months. And that, that was really painful. We, we had a lot of people joining, which took a lot of overhead, especially in engineering as well. There, uh, a lot of the new engineers that we brought on, we didn't put enough effort into documentation and onboarding, and we ended up doing a lot more pair programming. And because that was the that's the crutch that you have to use if you don't have a good documentation and onboarding process. You basically have to take your most expensive engineering resource and have them manually walk somebody through your code base. And so we, we weren't able to scale the team very effectively. It was, uh, I think our engineering team went from two to eight during that time period. And uh, our total output uh, was basically static. So we added, we, we increased the size of the team almost 5x. And uh, the total output of the engineering team didn't change at all. And that was mostly because we had not done a very good job of creating processes around the stuff and making sure that people have the tools they need to be effective. So definitely uh, 
one of the lessons you learn the hard way is that you, you really need to make sure people have the, the resources that they need to be successful. Sounds like you figured it out and you leaned in on your friend Darren there with some uh, <laughs> good documentation. For sure. So I think we're, we're, we're getting near the end here, but I feel like it would not be complete if we didn't get to know Sam just a little bit more on a personal level because I, I love that we talked a lot about uh, company culture within levels, but I think it's so interesting. A couple little tidbits that I learned about you is that um, you have these salon dinners um, in on the East Coast and the West Coast. And I think it's really fascinating. Can you just tell us briefly about that? I think it's just such a fun idea that other people might want to implement it in their lives. Yeah, for sure. It's something that really happened spontaneously, just knowing that I have a lot of interesting friends. I I would host a dinner with usually eight to 10 founder friends of mine to talk about different, a pretty eclectic mix of different topics. Um, the, it's a lot lower overhead than a lot of people expect. Um, it's really about solving for the 80, 20 here. Um, it's not about, uh, it's not about having decoration or really expensive food or wine. People come to see other interesting people and talk about interesting topics and they, they range from the, from the philosophical, like we did one on pragmatism and postmodernism to a salon we did on the wine industry. Um, some are some are industry specific, some are experiential. We did one on human connection and friendship, another one on purpose. Um, and so it's it's been a really interesting way of uh, learning from other people. Uh, to be honest, most of these are selfish. They, they tend to be topics that I personally don't feel like I understand the answer. And so my my goal is to get other people who have thought about this, who are smarter than me, talking about it in my presence to help me come to a firmer resolution on it. I think that is really interesting. I, I love how you create a theme around each one. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Priya Parker's book, uh, The Art of Gathering. Um, yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. This is just for the for you, the listener. Then um, I just thought you'd uh, really like that, but apparently you did. So um, I will selfishly invite myself to your next uh, salon because I want to come. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> well, I I have a long history in the event space, so I I live for those moments. Um, one last thing I want to ask you: um, I want to know what you are reading now, and. Um, I asked this question um, because I don't think anybody will be able to keep up with you because I also want to point out that I learned that you read two books a week and you read and you listen to them at three and a half times their speed. So it's not only do you read copious amounts of books every week, but you it's starring the chipmunks. Yeah, that's right. I you know when I when I started, I started doing audiobooks as my primary mechanism probably eight years ago, and uh, I think it was at one and a half x. And then over time, I just incremented up to one point seven five to two x. And right now, I, I listen to three x pretty comfortably. Sometimes I have to drop it to three if the author or the the, the narrator has a, an accent or the content is really dense. But 
Um, I'm, I'm currently, I just finished Robert Lustig's newest book, Metabolical, which is uh, really a takedown of processed foods and why they're so incredibly bad for us. Um, the, uh, he, he talks a lot about how obesity is maybe not the thing that we thought it was. It's maybe a symptom of something much more sinister, which is underlying metabolic dysfunction and how processed food is really the primary culprit for why we have these problems and that it's possible to be overweight and still healthy. Uh, it's also similarly possible to be thin or fit or even athletic and incredibly unhealthy. Um, and, uh, so that, that's the most recent book I read. Um, I think the, the next book I have on my list is, uh, David French's book, Divided We Fall, which is a, a book on, um, civility, like civil discourse and, uh, the, the somewhat concerning trends around how we, we seem to be unable to have civil conversation as a, I would say as a country, but I, I don't imagine this is just a localized phenomenon. I, I think this past year um, with the pandemic and the election has made that book very timely, <laughs> wouldn't you think? Yeah, definitely. So Sam, this is really amazing. I I'm so happy we had this time on Culture Factor with you, and I'm really excited for the growth of Levels. So I want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, for sure. And lastly, I just want to um, ask you before I consider closing down the room, because Clubhouse is about a community, did you want to field any questions? Yeah, I have, uh, I have 15 minutes. You have 15 minutes? Okay. So I am going to open up the floor. Um, if anybody is interested in asking Sam any questions, you could raise your hand and, um, I, when you do come up, I will ask you if it's okay to record you in the event that we decide to keep that question on the podcast. So you could be on a podcast at the same time. And I see that you also have Ben in the audience. Uh, he is, uh, maybe you'd like to tell everybody a little bit about uh, Ben while I bring up this next person. Yeah, for sure. In fact, coincidentally, Ben is taking lead on our team on the Culture Project. Uh, he's interviewing everyone on our team to try to synthesize and distill the way that we manage company culture. Uh, ben is our head of growth. Um, he's been really focused for, we're still very much exploring the different ways in which growth and what that, uh, the different ways that we manage growth within levels. And one of the big conclusions is that community is a big focus for us. And so Ben's taking leadership on that and has been really learning a lot of very interesting things about it. It sounds like Ben and I need to have a chat. <laughs> so... Um, I've brought uh, Leo Roars up to the stage. Are you okay with being recorded? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Speak to Sam. It's all yours. So I just wanted to ask to Sam regarding the top books you recommend uh, for uh, uh, as you are like why Incubator 17 founder and those things. I wanted to just know the top recommended books uh, for having a great speaking skills to be a great speaker 
in that sense uh, how we can articulate better those type of good books yeah i think the classic book is uh one of them is dale carnegie's um dale carnegie's book which is called something what's the name of that book it's a very famous book um it is how to win friends and influence people that's the name of the book um that's definitely a good one to think about ways of framing conversations in a way that can be productive um i would say the the shortest answer is practice it's a lot less to do with books and a lot more to do with practice um the i i do a lot of customer calls uh, i don't do as many anymore but there was a point in time in fact may of last year so about a year ago when i think i did somewhere on the order of 5 to 600 customer calls in the course of several months of just talking to people and learning from them and trying to trying different messaging out to see what would work for them um there there often isn't a way of knowing how to frame something effectively um i would say uh, not uh, not even not being uh coy about it but i'm i'm usually wrong when i have a an assumption about something the only way to test it is to put it in front of people and see if it lands and a lot of times it won't and that's okay uh and you just have to keep going um i think if if i did give a shorter explanation it would be it's much more important to be comfortable with rejection than it is to learn how to be a good speaker um and just keep practicing at it and just be be comfortable having people shut you down and tell you no and uh try a different message and uh, try different channels try different mediums um the the only way to know if something's actually working is to is to put it in front of them and see how they respond to it and just being okay with the fact that most of the time people aren't going to like it and this has certainly been my experience in startups is that it's it's really painful to spend a month working on something that you're really proud of and you put it in front of people and just nobody cares <laughs> and so oftentimes in a lot of these startups that i advise they they push off that moment because they don't want to be embarrassed by the thing that they're releasing and they don't they don't want to face that rejection so they they push these things off for far too long um i think there's a reed hoffman quote that if you're if you're not embarrassed by your first product launch you've waited too long so embrace that embarrassment and uh just uh keep pushing forward thanks a lot you know i'm would love to add on to here and and sam maybe you've already read this book cuz you read a lot faster than i do <laughs> um but adam grant recently wrote think again and i think some of the art of speaking well is also wrapped up in your ability to be open in a conversation and hear the other side and even possibly be convinced of another opinion and also in order to do that you need to actively listen and i think some of the best speakers that i've met uh throughout my career are people who actually listen more than they speak so that would be my addition yeah definitely 
Um, I will just thank you again, Sam. I think this has been amazing. I appreciate your time. And I hope we can do this again when you are a huge success with Levels. (laughs) I hope so. We'll talk soon. I'm often asked, does my business need a podcast? My answer is yes, that nothing else is the fast track into thought leadership and being established and seen as the expert in your industry as podcasting. What's increasingly evident is that it's a branding machine. It kicks doors open for you to have conversations with leaders. It creates a pathway to partnerships and connections on a deeper level. Social media cannot begin to touch this level of traction. You will not be your industry's best kept secret. Your ideas and business will have global reach. The added benefit will be tons of content you can repurpose across social media easily. No more writing blogs. It also makes your sales force much more agile. Having a podcast is a great lead generation tool. It's a pull marketing tool to bring people to your website, people that are interested in your product. So nothing works faster, not to mention it's great for your search engine optimization. So step into your power. Go to hollyshannon.com to launch your podcast now.